If you're new here, my name's Joel, and um, in competition with the weather, I'm going to be trying to talk to you today from the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. So if you've got your Bible with you, maybe you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's how to find it, uh, Luke chapter 1, and um, I'll be reading from that, or we will have a reading from that in just a moment. We've been celebrating the Advent season here at Emmanuel, as we've got into December and Christmas, the season where we uh, wait in darkness for the coming of the light, where we look forward to the, the emerging of a great appointed chosen one who will come to govern and rule. And we long for the, the appearance, the dawn of this great and mighty ruler. And Boris has come. It doesn't even sound right as a joke, does it? It's, it's, even as a joke, it just sounds wrong, so wrong. I tell you, in being serious, what I actually feel quite uh, grateful for is that we move on. We just finally flipping move on from the politics. Except we can't because we're in the Bible and the bit I'm going to read to you from is flipping political, all right? Just so you know. It's, uh, it's Mary's song from Luke chapter 1 where she sticks it to the man, all right? So we're, we're going to be uh, reading something which you might, not, you might not expect it to be political uh, because it's the song of uh, an ancient Near Eastern peasant girl living in a nowhere place, nowhere town. And, uh, and yet she has something to say that, that has huge dynamic political implications, in fact. Uh, we want to look at that today. We're going to spend some time on it next week as well, but this week I want to particularly look at this, this aspect of it, how it affects the way uh, the world ultimately is to be governed and ruled. That's what she's singing about. Um, and in fact, it's such an explosive song that she sings that it's kind, of, it, it's kind of been frowned on at different times in history. Some rulers have said, look, please can we not sing that? <laughs> can we not have that one? Uh, used in church services, please. It's, it's, that, it's that threatening. Uh, the Bible is not a tame book, just so you know. Um, what it has to say, it, it, gets, it, it gets in people's faces, and maybe it will get in our faces today before we finish. So Luke chapter 1 and verses 46 to 56, and then we'll pray and get into it. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture. And we, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit now to apply them to our hearts. Lord, we, we want to meet with your son Jesus again. We want to, Lord, have our hearts changed. We want to, Lord, receive from you the, the fullness of what you have for us today. So please send your spirit, lead us into truth. Help us to find strength and encouragement from this passage. Help us to find warning in it and help us to find comfort in the mercy you provide. I pray that for each one of us here. Just before we open our eyes, just, just say in your own heart, God, please speak to me right now. Please speak to me. Even if you're not sure if God's there, just say, please speak to me. In Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, she sings a, a song that doesn't sound particularly maternal, doesn't sound like a lullaby, doesn't sound like she's, she's uh, just overjoyed at her own personal uh, fortune. Although that comes into it, this song is, is a bit more global in its scope. It's kind, of, it's kind of epic in the full sense of that word. She's singing about thrones and kingdoms and powers and rulers. She's got the whole world in her sights. And she sings something which which actually has been like a torpedo under the water for history ever since. It, it seems so ordinary, just this, this young girl, just any other person singing a song, but, but what she's singing about, the story that she's celebrating, and the wonder of it, the ripples have gone out ever since. And it's affected the way we think. It's affected the way we think even 21 centuries later. The, the fact that we, we resonate with this, that we think there's something right about the, the, the rich being taken down, the hungry being filled with good things, that the, the, the proud get scattered and that mercy comes to those who are hungry and humble. The fact that we, we think there's something noble and good about social equity and justice, the fact that we think there's something good about the most disadvantaged, the most marginalised, being the most looked out for. The, the, the fact that we assume that there's something right about human equality, that everybody is equally valuable by virtue of their shared humanity, the, these sentiments and passions that we generally have, I'm sure we basically all share in this room and pretty much all across Brighton would have the same point of view, even if you know, wherever we sit spectrum-wise, right or left, we would still instinctively think yeah, there's something right about this, maybe especially at Christmas time, but, but just generally anyway. That is a legacy of Christianity. It's come from Christianity. It would not be so were it not for this story that she's singing about. If this hadn't happened, if these things didn't interrupt human affairs 2,000 years ago, we would not instinctively think like this. When Nelson Mandela said that the basis on which we should evaluate different nations is how well they treat the most disadvantaged. And we all nod. We all think, yeah, of course, that's very good. That's a very noble thing to say. I tell you, I promise you, <laughs> if it hadn't been for the interruption that Mary, Joseph and Jesus and all that followed brought into the world, brought, brought into the human bloodstream, if you like, we would have thought just like they did before that. 
If you go back to the Greek and Roman times in which they're living, man, you know it would not have been like that. Because no one held it as self-evident that all people are created equal. And the Americans have even written that into their constitution. It's like it's just written as just obvious. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's just assumed. It's self-evident, as Thomas Jefferson said. It's self-evident. You don't have to persuade people. Man, would you have had to persuade people in the ancient world. For the Greeks and the Romans, the world into which Jesus was born and the world into which this book was first written, it was self-evident that people were not created equal. Nothing was more plain than the fact that some people were clearly superior to others. Some people are better than others. Some people are more important, more worthy, to be taken more seriously. That's just a blank fact. It's stupid to deny it. It's self-evident. So how did it change? How did it change to the point where, centuries later, whole nations, the world's most powerful nation, builds its constitution on the opposite idea of human equality? And that we hold politicians to account on this. And that politicians know that they have to appeal to the public at least partly on this basis. They have to give the impression that they care. They have to. Because we as a society, won't, we will not tolerate people who clearly don't care. We, we feel that they ought to include a, 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 at least a nod to that. Because this is part of how we're wired socially. I tell you, it's, it's the influence that came about. This torpedo that hit the boat under the water centuries back and it's, it's caused all kinds of, of systems and ideas to change. Some things have sunk down and some things have raised up. In, in some ways what Mary's talked about here has literally happened over time. The culture has shifted hugely and we assume it. Now we don't necessarily like where it comes from. There'd be a lot of people who would resist even what I'm saying now because the, the whole idea that Christianity is a good thing the Bible, the God of the Bible is a good thing, is so unpleasant a thought that we'll reject that. We'll say, no, no, no. We like the idea of human equality and justice. We like the idea of you know, caring for disadvantage. But we don't like the Bible. So what we do is we rip it out from its roots. We say, we like the Christmas tree, but we'll have it indoors, <laughs> severed from its roots. And we'll have it, we'll decorate it, and we'll celebrate it while it dies. <laughs> it's a weird thing, isn't it, that we do every year? It's a slightly odd institution, the Christmas tree. Slightly strange. We put this thing in our house to rot for a month and shed needles everywhere and get really annoying, except we've got these kind of genetically modified ones that don't lose their needles now. So, so we kind of, we're happy with the idea of the decoration that it brings, but we don't want the roots. We don't want where it comes from. And it's just this way with social justice and, and care for the poor. If, if it doesn't come from the root of something meaningful that's bigger than us, that we're accountable to, in other words, the God of the Bible, it won't last. Not really. People will care for the poor because it's fashionable. And gradually it will become unfashionable. Gradually it will become less tolerated. Gradually other voices will come around saying, these people aren't important. Gradually people will start to decide, it's more efficient for us to, to not serve and support those who are in need. 
And the weakest, well, they're just weak. And the world is for the strong. That's the way cultures will go naturally if we rip this, this beautiful value of compassion from its roots. And we just say, we love compassion, we love the fruits of Christianity, we just don't want Christianity. Can't do it. Not for long, not for long. It will last for a while. Then it will start to molt. So what we have now is, is kind of molting Christianity in the West. We, we love the, the ideas, the revolutionary ideas of bringing down the rich, sticking it to them, bringing up the poor. We, we kind of, especially places like Brighton, we Brightonians, we love that stuff. We love that stuff. We don't like where it comes from, but it doesn't really thrive outside the soil of this book. It doesn't, not long term, it won't, it won't. What will survive will be some kind of malted mutation, which is more about bringing down powerful people. That's all it's for. It's like, it's, it's just any distrust of power. It's not quite the message, actually, of this book, as we'll go on to see. So I want us to look at actually what it is about what Mary's celebrating here. What is the revolution that she's antheming in her song and what we can learn from it. And I think what's good about it as well, how it will change our lives for the better. So let's, let's look at what she, she is celebrating. What is it about this revolution? First of all, it's a revolution with a king. With a king. A revolution which celebrates a king. That in itself is peculiar. Generally revolutions, you may have noticed this, don't know how much history you know, revolutions are anti-king, right? Most revolutions, they end up with someone's head being chopped off, usually with a crown on it. Kings don't do well. Why? Because of a general distrust towards people who have inherent power. People who have the concept of inherent authority. That we ought to do what so-and-so says and follow their, their reign and their rule because they have authority. Authority that has its kind of... It, it, it's just validated without an argument. It's just like, well, they're in authority. It's the king that says so. And we struggle with that. And so we tend to pull down kings. And that's, like I say, tended to happen through evolutions, generally speaking, um, through history. We, we, we pull down the powerful because the problem is the powerful. We see power as the problem. Power is the enemy. And I think Perhaps that's because we've seen power abused so often. We've seen kings and queens behave wickedly. We've seen, we've seen the abuse of power, so we assume the inherent wickedness of power. Power in itself must be the problem. But notice in the Bible, that isn't the way it goes at all. God never apologizes for being powerful. Never apologizes for being God. Even in this song, Mary sings positively about God being mighty. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she says in verse 49. He has, in verse 51, shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Shown strength. He is mighty. Strength with his arm. She celebrates his authority, his power. She celebrates his kingness, his godness. She's cool with it. And God is. 
much more than we generally are. We generally think power is the enemy, and so we, we quickly remove it as soon as we can. We get rid of our prime ministers every five years if we can, our presidents every four years, whatever. We just we quickly don't let, because power goes to heads. Power corrupts absolute power, absolutely. So, so don't let people have power, and maybe quite rightly, because power is so abused naturally by wicked people. But power in itself is not the problem. God hasn't apologised once for being God. He hasn't apologised once for being king. Jesus came amongst us and said in John chapter 13, these words that may be familiar to us. I'm going the wrong direction in my Bible. This is where Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He doesn't say, You call me teacher and Lord. Don't do that. See, 21st century Britannian Jesus would say, oh, no, 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 don't call me Lord. I'm, not, I'm just one of the guys. <laughs> I'm just on the same level as you. I don't want you to call me Lord. No, Jesus says, no, you, I am Lord. You do right. I am Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have... Well, I won't read on. I'll let you guess. When do you think he says this? When do you think Jesus says this? Don't call out. It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> You know, I used to be a school teacher. Don't call out. Why, why, does, why does Jesus say this? What's the, the story in which he's saying this? He's saying it when he's washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, at the point when he's doing the job of a slave, which it really was, it was a disgusting, shaming job that no one wanted to do. Jesus says, I'll do that. And he says, you call me Lord... And you do well, I am. And then he goes on to say, If I then, your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is saying the problem isn't lordship, the problem isn't power, the problem isn't government and authority, the problem is how we understand it, how we define it, and how it's exercised. God is not anti authority. He just wants to completely redefine it from the center. He wants to say how it works, what it's meant to be like. So those who love Jesus and follow Jesus need to be comfortable receiving his authority, receiving his lordship, his leadership, his kingship in our lives, and to some extent emulating it so that even in the worlds where we function, in our marriages or our families, we... We don't flee from authority. We don't say, well, we don't have authority figures in this household. No, 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 I'm a dad. I'm meant to have authority. It's good, but it's good, it's good as I learn to do it his way. I learn to practice it and work it out in a way that, frankly, is pretty against what my flesh wants to do a lot of the time, which is throw my weight around and be powerful for the sake of it, for my selfish ambition, selfish convenience. But when I get to know this God who shows up, the Lord of eternity, and when there's feet that need washing, he says, I'll do that. The Lord of eternity comes to a manger, comes to a stable. The Lord of eternity exists in the womb of a, a young girl, a young Jewish girl, the Lord of eternity, restricted to something microscopic. 
I get to see what God means by might. How does God exercise might? By laying down his life for his enemies. He doesn't say, I won't be powerful. He says, let me show you, let me show you how. Let me show you power. Let me show you greatness. And when I get to see that kind of greatness, I don't know about you, I want him to be my king. I, I, want, I want his rule more and more. I, I feel like I can trust him. I don't feel like, I just, no, I don't want to come under any power. I don't want any authority over me. That's the cry of 21st century Western man. Give me my freedom. In other words, let me be king. So we're multiplying billions of kings all over the world. Doesn't really work, doesn't do any good, just breaks us up. What we need is a king. But a king who, like the Bible says in Psalm 45, rides forth for truth, humility, and justice. A king like that, you can submit to him. You, you really can. You can trust his lordship. You can come under his lordship. Even when it's tough, even when Jesus asks you to do something and you think, oh, really? Even when following him is costly, and it will be costly. Isn't it? Don't you find that? If you follow Jesus, you know what I mean, don't you? It's tough sometimes. It's tough loving, forgiving, trusting, walking a path of purity. It's tough when following him means that I can't follow them. I can't be with that. It's hard. But what a king he is. The king that laid his life down. The king that submitted to the manger and to the cross. He can be trusted. He can be followed. He's shown us what real authority is. Second thing to say, it's, it's a revolution that requires patience, right? So Mary's singing about Jesus triumphing. She's singing about this God that's going to show up and boss it and deal with everything and set everything straight. And man, would she have liked to see that? I mean, that little girl, she's lived her life under oppression. She's inviting a lot more sorrow into her life by saying yes to God. She's known no dignity, no encouragement. As a, as a, a young Jewish girl, she's under the heel of brutality. That's, that's life for her. The world is an unjust place in many ways for people living in her age and stage at this time in history. And you can imagine in her heart this longing for justice to come. Justice, a day of justice, a day of righteousness, a day when things will be set straight. And she sings about it as though it's already happened. You notice that? It's all past tense, according to Mary. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel. <laughs> Only thing is, none of this has happened yet. As yet, all that's happened is something microscopic, literally, in her uterus. That's all that's happened. It's just a seed and an egg. That's it. But for Mary, it's everything. It's happened. The world is set right. In here, something has happened. 
She knows it. She's sure of it. And she lives in the in-between. If you follow Jesus, you are invited to the in-between. And you have to learn to live that tension out. It's not easy. It's really not. You grow in it. It's like a dance. You learn what it is to feel completely marginalized, usually outnumbered. Sometimes the object of curiosity, sometimes the object of scorn, sometimes completely ignored. Why? Because you love Jesus. And you feel like, quite a lot of the time, that you're on the wrong side of history, right? I felt like that this last month. I noticed that this time the politicians didn't even try to get my vote. They didn't even talk about Christianity. They used to, a little bit. I noticed that. They used to. They used to try and make it out. You know, I, well, yes, I'm, as a church-going person, I'm not sure about I, I take Christianity quite seriously. No, they didn't even bother this time. They didn't even bother. Why? Who wants the Christian vote? There's no Christians left. Who needs them? Church? Ah, ignore it. Who cares about the church? Right and left. That's the attitude now. Do you feel like that sometimes? I'm just, just, that's what we are now. Wrong side of history, right? Mary doesn't think so. Mary knows something. She knows. She, she, know, she knows so well, she talks about it as if it's already happened. It's past tense. I've seen it. I know it. It's in here. I know it's coming. He's going to set everything straight one day. He's going to. I've seen it. I know it. You don't know anything. You're a, just a peasant girl from Galilee. Who are you? You know nothing. I know everything. That's a Christian. You've got to be persuaded, friends. It's going to take it. It's going to be years. She, she's talking as if it's all happened. She's got nine months before she's going to see the fruit of this. And that's just a, like a metaphor. Having, pregnancy takes time. That's like, hello, that's a point. It takes time. And then when he's born, it's 30 years before he does anything public. And 30 very confusing years for Mary. <laughs> you ever read the Bible? She got really confused by Jesus more than once. Why, why are you hanging out with those people? Why, why are you at the temple? Jesus, I don't get this. I don't get this. Friends, if you follow Jesus, he's inviting you into a, a, a life of at least occasionally not knowing what he's doing. Why, why is he not showing up in our nation right now? Why is he not setting? Why is he not shutting them up? Why are they getting away with this? How dare they? Doesn't God care? What, what's he doing? Imagine Mary so often. You're supposed to be the Messiah, the king. Come on, do something. Working in the carpentry with your dad? I don't know. I'm just imagining the confusion that must have gone on for her. And it shows it in a few places in scripture. It's a waiting game, actually. It requires patience, this kingdom. We have to learn it. You have to learn to be an outsider while you're an insider. You ever been an insider to something? You ever been part of a, an idea that's gone big? There's someone in this church whose dad was in the cavern when the Beatles played, about 1960-61 in Liverpool, when no one knew about the Beatles. He was there. And once one of them went out to the loo and stepped on his toe and said sorry to him. 
And I said to him, which one was it? He doesn't know which one. Oh, man. I hope it wasn't Pete Best, the drummer. They got sacked. Imagine there. Imagine being at the cavern before it went just global. You were in on the thing that became the biggest thing since Jesus. I wonder what else, you know, some, who were the people that first met Steve Jobs before, before it became massive? Or, you know, who, who knew Mandela in prison? It's possible to be an early adopter, as they call them, you know, in business speak. The people that are in on an idea and they like it and they get excited about it. And they, they embrace it and they join it. That was what it was like with, with, with Mary and the, the little posse, the little few people, Elizabeth, Zachariah, Joseph. And it grew a little bit more, it grew a little bit more, grew a little bit more. They tried to deal with the Christians, beat them up, put them in prison, put them in arenas with the lions. Didn't work, grew a little bit more, a bit bigger, more and more. It's going everywhere, this thing. Because the kingdom of God is like that. It just grows and grows. Even you try to stamp it out, you try to stamp it out of China, it grew. Trying to stamp it out of Europe, it'll grow back. Why? Because Mary's already seen it. She knows it. It's happened. Past tense for her. It's past tense. You need to live, friends, in this place. As John says in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are the children of God. Already we are the children of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. That's, that is the tension of the New Testament. That's the tension of your life if you love Jesus. You already are. But it does not yet appear what you shall be. One day it will be obvious. One day everything will become plain as day. And we live in the in-between. And God calls us to patient maturity as we walk that out. Are you ready for that? Let me ask you to handle that wisely. To not marry the spirit of the age. To not try desperately to be accepted by either right or left to not try desperately to fit into this world. You never will completely. It's like trying to fit into a grave when you're alive. What's the point of that? No, no, it does not yet appear what we shall be. Don't desperately try to fit into this passing age. And don't be too overwhelmed when you realise that you don't. If you feel even coming up to Christmas, some of you are the only Christian in your family, and you don't like the the prospect of feeling alienated at the dinner table. And I feel for you. I know that's hard. I imagine it's hard. Remember what Mary saw. You, you might feel such a minority, but you belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Third thing, justice and mercy. Let's finish with this. I love this. Justice and mercy. See, I say I love this. It's actually... It's actually terrifying if you think about it. She says in, in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has scattered the proud. That, that's surely good news for us because we hate the pride. We hate the proud. We do, don't we? We hate them. Can't stand those proud people. We hate the wealthy hate the powerful, hate the proud, hate the current incumbent of the White House because he's proud. Don't like the politicians because they're proud. I was at a gig this week where you know, there's the, 
the theme of the little discourses between each song by the artist. It was a brilliant gig, but every little bit in between was sticking it to the proud. Because we like to assume the proud is that guy over there. The proud's those people. We hate the proud. We, we all hate the proud, right? Aren't I right? In fact, I, I'd like to think that I hate the pride around me. That's one of the things I'm quite proud of about myself. I, you know, I don't like pride. I you know, keep away from it. I'm hostile to proud people because I'm you know, just, just not that way. I'm better than that. I'm quite proud of it, really. I'm, not, I'm, I'm making it into a joke, but I'm telling you, it's, I'm dead serious because we're just fools. We're just totally, utterly foolish in the way we think. <laughs> and Jesus says it all the time. All the ways that we just are so quick to see it everywhere except in ourselves. We think, well, maybe, maybe, all right, maybe I am proud. Everyone's proud. No one's perfect. I'm talking about the really proud. Oh, okay, okay, that's fine. That's, that's, okay, I get the point. Some people are really proud. You're clearly not. Let's go with that. Where would you like the line to be drawn? Just where? I have a feeling it might be to your convenience. I have a feeling the line will be drawn in such a way where you are not one of the really proud. You're, you're one of the uh, deserving proud. No, you can't do that. The Bible never does that. The Bible, in fact, says in Proverbs more than once that the worst kind of proud people are the people that don't think they're proud. No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every mouth is stopped. Every single one of us. So when Mary says he's brought down the proud... And she's looking forward to a revolution, a king that will come and straighten paths and set things right. Every lofty place will be brought low. Every valley will be exalted. And we start applauding and imagining that we're on the goody side. What fools we are. It's like turkeys looking forward to Christmas. What fools we are. To imagine this is good news. He's after you. It's going to take everybody down. Everybody that's exhorted themselves up against God. That includes me for a start. You ask my wife and kids. They know that I'm proud. This isn't good news. This is terrifying. Jesus, when he's described in the book of Revelation, it's not meek and mild. He's come to bring justice. He's come to say, look, enough Enough of man exalting himself against God. Enough. Set everything straight. The justice that God wants to bring is good news and bad news, therefore. So how is the good news applied to the proud? How is this good news for me and you? Well, she doesn't just talk about justice. In verse 50, she talks about his mercy his mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy is for those who fear him. This is why Christmas is good news. This is why when the shepherds were trembling with fear, 
when the angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone all around, the shepherds heard the words, do not be afraid. Wow. This is always the way that God draws near in the Christmas story. Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, shepherds. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace. Yeah, he will come one day on a white horse. He will come. He will set everything straight. He will stick it to everything. He will set everything straight. And it will be terrifying. We will be speechless. But he came first in a manger. He came gentle. He came, he came in poverty. He came in weakness. He came tenderly. And he comes to us today. That's how he comes. That's how he wants to visit each one. Because he comes in mercy. He comes in even to the proud. To those who get to a point of seeing their pride. Who see their need. Who see their desperate dependence. If you've got to that point. If you've understood your shortcomings. Understood your sin. Understood that you, you can't cope without forgiveness. There's no hope for you unless he's a forgiving God. If you've got to that point, well, Mary's got such good news. He's showing mercy to the humble. So come to him. Come for mercy today. As we come to the table in a moment, come for mercy. Don't come making claims. Don't come impressing God. You can't. Don't come impressing yourself. If you feel aware of your sin this week, you feel aware of your disqualification, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Come humbly to him. Receive grace from him. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we, we acknowledge that your king is the right one. We don't have a better one. We're glad you sent him. We're glad that he's destined to rule and govern Lord, we do need his kingdom. We long for it. Our hearts break at the way things go. Our hearts break at the way the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable suffer in this world. Our hearts break at people whose Christmases are not even a thing because all they know is poverty. They don't even know what Christmas really is don't really know what a family is. Hearts break for the most defenseless, even the ones in the womb. Our hearts break for our nation, Lord. We say, Jesus, please come. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Such a lost and broken nation. So, so much ignorance. And your church is so despised and so ignored and so voiceless. And we've not done well. We've not, we've not changed things. We've not set everything straight. We've not been impressive, Lord. We feel fruitless. We feel we can't bring life forth. How can we bring life only if you come, Lord Jesus.
only if you come to our nation. We say, let your kingdom come. Please have mercy in Brighton. Please, please, please have mercy. Please come in grace and mercy to our city, to our country. Please bring an awareness of you, a fear of you. Please bring a humility. Please bring a desperation and a longing. Please cause men and women, boys and girls, up and down this country to get to a point of discovering their desperate need for a merciful God, for forgiveness and salvation, for a change of heart that only the Holy Spirit can perform within them. We cry to you for it. We haven't the strength to bring it about ourselves. We need you desperately, just like Mary did. She needed you to bring life within her womb, and so do we, spiritually speaking. We want to give birth in this nation to a new era of transformation and change. So we say, come upon us in Jesus' name. And we say, God, each one of us, we come as beggars, we come humbly. We take bread, we take wine, we celebrate this gift of Jesus. He is everything to us. And we pray for everybody here who doesn't yet know Jesus, that you would help them to see their need and come to him humbly to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've not become a Christian today, or before I mean, please don't come to take bread and wine with us. You need to be a Christian to do that. But if you'd like to become a Christian, you'd like to take bread and wine with us, we'd love to help you. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you. I would like to do that. Please, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of us at the tables. Come and introduce yourself. We'll pray with you. We'll explain it to you. We'll help you. Otherwise, let's stand together. And when you're ready, come to the table. We'll take bread and wine. We'll celebrate Jesus.